welcome to God's Messenger Podcast. This is your host, Scott Messenger, and today I will be reading you Chapter 3 from The Hiding Place, The Triumphant True Story of Corey Tenboom with John and Elizabeth Sherrill. Chapter 3, Carl. I first met Carl at one of the occasions for which Mama was famous. Afterward, I never could remember whether it was a birthday, a wedding anniversary, a new baby. Mama could make a party out of anything. Willem introduced him as a friend from Leiden, and he shook hands with us one by one. I took that long, strong hand, looked up into those deep brown eyes, and felt irretrievably in love. As soon as everyone had coffee, I sat down just to gaze at him. He seemed quite unaware of me, but that was only natural. I was a child of fourteen, while he and Willem were already university men, sprouting straggly beards and breathing out cigar smoke with their conversation. It was enough, I felt, to be in the same room with Carl. As for being unnoticed, I was thoroughly used to that. Newly was the one boys noticed, uh, though, like so many pretty girls, she seemed not to care. Uh, when a boy asked for a lock of her hair, the standard method in those days of declaring passion, she would pull a few strands from the ancient gray carpet in our bedroom, tie them with a sentimental blue ribbon, and make me the messenger. The carpet was quite threadbare by now, the school full of broken hearts. I, on the other hand, fell in love with each boy in any class in turn, in a kind of hopeless regular rhythm. But since I was not pretty, and far too bashful to express my feelings, a whole generation of boys was growing up unaware of the girl in seat 32. Carl, though, I thought, as I watched him spooning sugar into his cup, was different. I was going to love Carl forever. It was two years before I saw Carl again. That was the winter, 1908, that Newley and I made a trip to the university at Leiden to pay Willem a visit. Willem's sparsely furnished room was on the fourth floor of a private home. He gathered both Newley and me into a bear hug and then ran to the window. Here, he said, taking in from the sill a cream bun he had been keeping cold there. I bought this for you. You'd better eat it quick before my starving friends arrive. We sat on the edge of Willem's bed, gulping down the precious bun. I suspected that to buy it, Willem had had to go without lunch. A second later, the door slammed open, and in burst four of his friends, tall, deep-voiced young men in coats with twice-turned collars and threadbare cuffs. Among them was Carl. I swallowed the last bite of cream bun, 
wiped my hands on the back of my skirt, and stood up. Willem introduced Newly and me around, but when he came to Carl, Carl interrupted. We know each other already. He bowed ever so slightly. Do you remember? We met at a party at your home. I glanced from Carl to Newly, but no, he was looking straight at me. My heart poured out a rapturous reply, but my mouth was still filled with the sticky remains of bun, and it never reached my lips. Soon, the young men were seated at our feet on the floor, all talking eagerly and at once. Perched beside me on the bed, newly joined in, as naturally as though visiting a university was an everyday event for us. For one thing, she looked the part. At eighteen, she was already in long skirts. While I was acutely conscious of the six inches of thick black schoolgirl stockings between the hem of my dress and the top of my shoes. Also, newly had things to talk about. The year before she had started normal school, she didn't really want to be a teacher. But in those days, universities did not offer scholarships to girls, and normal schools were inexpensive. And so she chatted easily and knowledgeably about things of interest to students. This new theory of relativity, relativity by a man called Einstein and whether Admiral Hurry would really reach the North Pole. And you, Corey, will you go on to be a teacher too? Sitting on the floor at my feet, Carl was smiling at me. I felt a blush rise beneath my high collar. Next year, I mean, uh, he persisted. This is your final year in secondary school, isn't it? Yes, I mean, no, I'll stay home with Mama and Tante Anna. It came out so short and flat. Why did I say so little when I wanted to say so very much? Hmm. That spring, I finished school and took over the work of the household. It had always been planned that I would do this, but now there was an added reason. Tante Bep had tuberculosis. Lo tuberculosis, the disease was regarded as incurable. The only known treatment was rest at a sanatorium, and that was only for the rich. And so, for many months, Tante Bep lay in her little closet of a room, coughing away her life. To keep down the risk of infection, only Tante Anna went in or out. Around the clock, she nursed her older sister, many nights getting no sleep at all, and so the cooking and washing and cleaning for the family fell on me, fell to me. I loved the work, and except for Tante Bep, would have been completely happy. But over everything lay her shadow, not only the illness, but her whole disgruntled and disappointed life. Often I would catch a glimpse inside when I handed in a tray, or Tante Anna passed one out. There were the few pathetic uh, mementos of thirty years in other people's homes, perfume bottles, 
empty many years because well-bred families always gave the governess perfume for Christmas. Some faded daguerreotypes for children who by now must have children and grandchildren of their own. Uh, then the door would shut, but I would linger in that narrow passage under the eaves, yearning to say something, to heal something, wanting to love her better. I spoke once about my feelings to Mama. She too was more and more often in bed, always before when pain from the gallstones had got too bad, she'd had an operation, but a small stroke after the last one made further surgery impossible, and many days making up a tray for Tante Bep, I carried one upstairs to Mama also. This time, when I brought in her lunch, she was writing letters. When Mama wasn't supplying the neighborhood with caps and baby dresses from her flying needles, she was composing cheery messages for shut-ins all over Harlem. The fact that she herself had been shut-in much of her life never seemed to occur to her. Here's a poor man, Corey, she cried as I came in, who's been cooped up in a single room for three years. Just think, shut away from the sky. I glanced out Mama's single window at the brick wall three feet away. Mama, I said as I uh, set the tray on the bed and sat down beside it, can't we do something for Tante Bep? I mean, isn't it and that she has to spend her last days here where she hates it instead of where she was so happy? The Wallers or someplace? Mama laid down her pen and looked at me. Corey, she said at last, Bep has been just as happy here with me, or us, no more and no less that than she was anywhere else. I stared at her, not understanding. Do you know when she started praising the Wallers so highly, Mama went on, the day she left them, as long as she was there, she had nothing but complaints. The Wallers couldn't compare with the Van Hooks, where she'd been before, but at the Van Hooks, she'd actually been miserable. Happiness isn't something that depends on our surroundings, Corey. It's something we make inside ourselves. Tante Bep's death affected her sisters in characteristic fashion. Mama and Tante Anna redoubled their cooking and sewing for the needy in the neighborhood. As though realizing how brief was someone's lifetime of service. As for Tante Jen's, her own particular specter moved very close. My own sister, she would exclaim at odd moments of the day, why, it might as well have been me. A year or so after Tante Bep's death, a new doctor took over Dr. Blinkner's uh, house calls. The new man's name was Jan Van Ven, and with him came his young sister and nurse, Teen Van Ven. With him also came 
a new gadget for taking blood pressure. We had no idea what this meant, but everyone in the household submitted to having the strip of cloth wrapped around his arm and air pumped into it. Tante Jans, who loved medical paraphernalia of every kind, took a tremendous fancy to the new doctor, and from then on consulted him as often as her finances would permit. And so it was, Dr. Van Ven, a couple of years later, who first discovered that Tante Jans had diabetes. <clears throat> In those days, this was a death sentence as surely as tuberculosis had been. For days, the household was numb with the shock of it. After all these years of fearing even the idea, here was the dread thing itself. Tante Jan went straight to bed on hearing the news, but in action went poorly with her vigorous personality, and one morning, to everyone's surprise, she appeared for breakfast in the dining room precisely at 8.10 with the announcement that doctors were often wrong. All these tests and tubes, said Tante Jans, who believed in them implicitly, what do they really prove? And from then on, she threw herself more forcefully than ever into writing, speaking forming clubs, and launching projects. Holland, in 1914, like the rest of Europe, was mobilizing for war, and the streets of Harlem were suddenly filled with young men in uniform. From her windows overlooking the Barcherstrat, Tante Jans, Jans watched them idly by, gazing aimlessly into the shop windows, most of them young penniless and lonesome, and she conceived the idea of a soldier's center. Uh, it was a novel idea for its day, and Tante Jans threw all the passion of her nature into it. The horse-drawn trolley on the Bartosdestrat had recently been replaced with a big new electric one, but it still squealed to a stop spitting sparks from rails and wire, when Tante Jan stood imperiously before the bayet, she would sweep aboard her long black skirts in one hand, and the other a list of the well-to-do ladies who were about to become patronesses of the new venture. Only those of us who knew her best were aware, beneath all the activity of the monstrous fear which drew, drove her on. And meanwhile, her disease posed financial problems. Each week a fresh test had to be made to determine the sugar content of her blood, and this was a complicated and expensive process requiring either Dr. Van Ven or his sister to come to the house. At last, Teen uh, Van Ven taught me to run the weekly test myself. There were several steps involved, the most crucial being to heat the final compound to exactly the right temperature. It was hard to make the old coal-burning range in our dark kitchen do anything very precisely, 
but I finally learned how, and from then on, each Friday mixed the chemicals and conducted the test myself. If the mixture remained clear when heated, all was well. It was only if I turned black then that I was to notify Dr. Van Ven. It was that spring that Willem came home from his final holiday before ordination. He had graduated from the university two years before and was now in his last months of theological school. One warm evening during his visit, we were all sitting around the dining room table. Father was with thirty watches spread out before him, was marking in a little notebook in his precise, beautiful script. Two seconds lost, five seconds gained. While Willem read aloud from a history of the Dutch Reformation, all at once the bell in the alley rang. Outside the dining room window, a mirror faced the alley door so that we could see who was there before going down to open it. I glanced into it and sprang up from the table. Corey, said Betsy reprovingly, your skirt. I could never remember that I was wearing long skirts now, and Betsy spent many evenings mending the rips I put in them when I moved too fast. Now I took all five steps in a bound, for at the door a a bouquet of daffodils in her hands was Teen Van Van. Whether it was the soft spring night that put it in my mind, or Willem's dramatic uh, pulpit-trained voice, I suddenly knew that the meeting of these two people had to be a very special moment. For your mother, Corey, Teen said, holding out the flowers as I opened the door. I hope she's... No, no, you carry the flowers. You look beautiful with them, and without... Even taking her coat, I pushed the startled girl up the stairs ahead of me. I prodded her through the dining room door, almost treading on her heels to see Willem's reaction. I knew exactly how it would be. My life was lived just then in romantic novels. I borrowed them from the library in English, Dutch, and German often reading ones I liked in all three languages, and I had played this scene where hero meets heroine a thousand times. Willem rose slowly to his feet, his eyes never leaving teens. Father stood up too. Miss Van Ven, Father said in his old-fashioned manner, allow me to present to you our son, Willem. Willem, this is the young lady of whose talent and kindness you have heard us speak. I doubt if either one heard the introduction. They were staring at each other as though there were not another soul in the room or in the world. Willem and Tina were married two months after her ordination. During all the weeks of getting ready, one thought stood out in my mind. Carl will be there. The wedding day dawned 
cool and sparkling. My eyes picked Carl immediately from the crowd in front of the church, dressed in top hat and tails, as were all the male guests, but incomparably the handsomest there. As for me, I felt that a transformation had taken place since he had seen me last. The difference between my 21 years and his 26 was not, after all, as big as it had once been. But more than that, I felt, no, not beautiful. Even on such a romantic day as this, I could not persuade myself of that. I knew that my jaw was too square, my legs too long, my hands too large, but I earnestly believed, and all the books agreed, that I would look beautiful to the man who loved me. Betsy had done my hair that morning, laboring for an hour with the curling iron until it was piled high on my head, and so far, for a wonder, it had stayed. She'd made my silk dress too, as she'd made one for each of the women in the family, working by lamplight in the evenings because the shop was open six days a week and she would not sew on Sundays. Not knowing, now knowing, or now looking around me, I decided that our homemade outfits were as stylish as any there. Nobody would guess, I thought, as the gentle press toward the door began, that father had given up his cigars and Tante Jan's the coal fire in her rooms in order to buy the silk that wished so elegantly with us now. Corey! In front of me stood Carl, tall black hat in his hands, his eyes searching my face as though he were not quite sure. Yes, it's me, I said, laughing up at him. It's me, Carl, and it's you, and it's the moment I've been dreaming of. But you're so, so grown up. Forgive me, Corey. Of course you are. It's just that I've always thought of you as the little girl with the enormous blue eyes. He stared at me a little longer, and then added softly, And now the little girl is a lady, and a lovely one. Suddenly the organ music swelling from the open door was for us. The arm he offered me was the moon, and my gloved hand resting upon it was the only thing that kept me from soaring right over the peaked rooftops of Harlem. It was a windy, rainy Friday morning in January when my eyes told me what at first my brain refused to grasp. The liquid in the glass beaker on the kitchen stove was a muddy, sullen black. I leaned against the old wooden sink and shut my eyes. Please, God, let me have made a mistake. I went over in my mind the different steps, looked at the vials of chemicals, the measuring spoons. No, all just the same as I'd always done. It was this wretched room then. It was always dark in this little cupboard of a kitchen. With a pot holder, I snatched up the beaker and ran to the window in the dining room. Black, black as fear itself. 
still clutching the beaker, I pounded down the five steps and through the rear door of the shop. Father, his jeweler's glass in his hand, was bent over the shoulder of the newest apprentice, deftly uh, selecting an infinitesimal part from the array before them on the workbench. I looked through the glass in the door to the shop, but Betsy, behind her little cashier's desk, was talking to a customer. Not a customer, I corrected myself, a nuisance. I knew the woman. She came here for advice on watches and then bought them at that new place, Cons, across the street. Neither father nor Betsy seemed to care that this was happening more and more. As the woman left, I burst through the door with the telltale beaker. Betsy, I cried. Oh, Betsy, it's black. How are we going to tell her? What are we going to do? Betsy came swiftly from behind the desk and put her arms around me. Behind me, father came into the shop. His eyes traveled from the beaker to Betsy to me. And you did exactly right, Corey. In every detail? I'm afraid so, father. And I am sure of it, my dear. But we must have the doctor's verdict, too. I'll take it at once, I said. And so I poured the ugly liquid into a small bottle and ran with it over the slippery, rain-washed streets of Harlem. There was a new nurse at Dr. Van Ven's, and I spent a miserable, silent half-hour in the waiting room. At last, his patient left, and Dr. Van Ven took the bottle into his small laboratory. There is no mistake, Corey, he said as he emerged. Your aunt has three weeks at the very most. We held a family conference in the watch shop when I got back. Mama, Tante Anna, Father, Betsy, and me. Newly did not get home from her teaching job until evening. We agreed that Tante Jans must know at once. We will tell her together, Father decided, though I will speak the necessary words. And perhaps, he said, his face brightening, perhaps she will take heart from all she has accomplished. She puts great store on accomplishments, Jan does, and who knows but that she is right. And so the little procession filled, filed up the stairs to Tante Jan's room. Come in, she called to Father's knock, and added as she always did, and closed the door before I catch my death of drafts. She was sitting at her round mahogany table, working on yet another appeal, appeal peril uh, for her soldier center. Uh, as she saw the number of people entering the room, she laid down her pen. She looked from one face to another until she came to mine and gave a little gasp of comprehension. This was Friday morning, and I had not yet come up with the results of the test. My dear sister-in-law, father began gently, there is a joyous uh, journey which each of God's children sooner or later sets out on, and Jan's, so uh, some must go into their father empty-handed, but you will run to him with hands full. 
all your clubs, Tante Anna ventured. Your writings, Mama added. The funds you've raised, said Betsy. Your talks, I began. But our well-meant words were useless. In front of us, the proud face crumpled. Tante Jan put her hands over her eyes and began to cry. Empty! Empty! She choked at last through her tears. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? And then, as we listened in disbelief, she lowered her hands, and with tears still coursing down her face, whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with you with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross, and that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. Mama threw her arms around her, and they clung together, but I stood rooted to the spot, knowing that I had seen a mystery. It was Father's train ticket, given at the moment itself, with a flourish of her handkerchief and a forceful clearing of her nose. Tante Jans let us know that the moment for sentiment had passed. If I had a moment's pri if I had a moment's privacy, she said, I might get some work accomplished. She glanced at Father, and into those stern eyes crept the nearest thing to a twinkle I had ever seen. Not that the work matters, Casper. Not that it matters at all. But she dismissed us crisply. I'm not going to leave an untidy desk behind for someone else to clean up. It was four months after Tante Jen's funeral that the long-awaited invitation came to Willem's first sermon. After less than a year as assistant to a minister in Euthusian, uh, he had been given a church of his own in Brabant, the beautiful rural southern part of Holland, and in the Dutch Reformed Church, a minister's first sermon in his first church was the most solemn, joyous, emotional occasion that an unemotional people could conceive. Family and friends would come from great distances and stay for days. From his own assistant pastor, Carl wrote that he had that he would be there and looked forward to seeing us all again. I endowed that word all with special meaning and pressed dresses and packed trunks in a delirium of anticipation. It was one of Mama's bad times. She huddled in the corner of our train compartment, the hand that gripped Father's whitening at the knuckles each time the train lurched or swayed. But while the rest of us gazed out at long rows of poplars in their bright June green, Mama's eyes never left the sky. What to us was a trip through the country, to her was a feast of clouds and light and infinite blue distances. Uh, both the village of Maid and the congregation of Willem's church had declined in recent years, but the church building itself, dating back to better days, was large 
and so was Willem and Tina's house across the street. Indeed, by the Bayet standards, it was enormous. For the first few nights, the ceiling seemed so far overhead that I could not sleep. Uncles and, or see, uncles and cousins and friends arrived each day. But no matter how many people moved in, the rooms always looked to me half empty. Three days after we got there, I answered the front door knocker, and there stood Carl, cold dust from his train trip, still speckling his shoulders. He tossed his brown carpet bag past me into the hall, seized my hand, and drew me out into the June sunshine. It's a lovely day in the country, Corey, he cried. Come, walking. Uh, from then on, it seemed taken for granted that Carl and I would go walking each day. Each, each time we wandered a little farther down the country lanes that would that wound in every direction away from the village, the dirt beneath our feet so different from the brick streets of Harlem. It was hard to believe at such moments that the rest of Europe was locked in the bloodiest war in history. Even across the ocean, the madness seemed to be spreading. The papers said America would enter. Here in neutral Holland, one sun sunlit June day followed another. Only a few people, like Willem, insisted that the war was Holland's tragedy too. His first sermon was on this theme. Europe and the world were changing, he said. No matter which side won, a way of life was gone forever. I looked around at his congregation of sturdy villagers and farmers and saw that they did not care for such ideas. After the sermon, friends and more distant family started home. But Carl lingered on. Our walks lasted longer. Often we talked about Carl's future, and suddenly we were speaking not about what Carl was going to do, but about what we were going to do. We imagined that we had a huge old mansi like this one to decorate and rejoiced to discover that we had the same ideas about furniture, flowers, even the same favorite colors. Only about children did we disagree. Carl wanted four, while I held out stubbornly for six. And all this while the word marriage was never spoken. One day, when Carl was in the village, Willem came out of the kitchen with two cups of coffee in his hands. Uh, Tine, was a, with a cup of her own, was just behind him. Corey, William said, handing me a, the coffee and speaking as though with effort, has Carl led you to believe that he is... Serious? Tine finished his sentence for him. The hateful blush that I could never control set my cheeks burning. I know we why. Willem's face reddened too. Because, Corey, this is something that can never be. You don't know Carl's family. They've wanted one thing since he was a small child. They've sacrificed for it, planned for it. Built their whole lives around it. Carl is to marry well. 
is the way I think they put it. The big barren parlor seemed suddenly emptier still. But what about what Carl wants? He's not a small child now. Willem fixed his sober, deep-set eyes on mine. He will do it, Corey. I don't say he wants it. To him, it's just a fact of uh, life like any other. When we talked about girls we liked at the university, he always say at the end, Of course I could never marry her. It would kill my mother. The hot coffee scolded my mouth, but I gulped it down and made my escape to the garden. I hated that gloomy old house, and sometimes I almost hated Willem for always seeing the dark, hard side of things. Here in the garden it was different. There wasn't a bush, hardly a flower, that Carl and I hadn't looked at together, that didn't have a bit of our feeling for each other still clinging to it. Willem might know more than I did about theology and war and politics, but when it came to romance... Things like money, social prestige, family expectations. Why, in the books they vanish like rain clouds every time. Carl left made a week or so later, and his last words made my heart sore. Only months afterward did I remember how strangely he spoke them. The urgency, almost desperation in his voice. We were standing in the driveway of the Mansi, waiting for the horse and cart, which made still regarded as the only dependable conveyance when there was a train to be caught. We had said goodbye after breakfast, and if part of me was disappointed that he still had not proposed, another part of me was content just to be beside him. Now suddenly the driveway he seized both uh, my hands. Corey, write to me, he said, but not gaily, uh, pleadingly. Write to me about the bayet. I want to know everything. I want every detail of that ugly, beautiful, crumbling old house. Write about your father, Corey. Write about how he forgets to send the bills. Oh, Corey, it's the happiest home in Holland. And so it was. Indeed, when Father, Mama, Betsy, Newly, Tante Anna, and I returned, it had always been a happy place. But now, each little event seemed to glow because I could share it with Carl. Every meal I cooked was an offering to him, each shining pot a poem, every sweep of the broom an act of love. His letters did not come as often as mine went singing to him, but I put this down to his work. The minister he was assisting, he wrote, had turned the parish calling over to him. It was a wealthy congregation, and large contrib contributors expected frequent and unhurried visits from the clergy. As time went on, went by, his letters came more seldom. I made up, made up for it with mine, and went humming my way through the summer and fall. One glorious, nippy November day when all of Holland was singing with me, the doorbell rang. I was washing the lunch dishes in the kitchen. 
but I ran through the dining room and down the steps before the rest of the family could stir. I flung open the alley door, and there was Carl. Beside him was a young woman. She stood smiling at me. I took in the hat with its sweeping feather, the ermine collar, the white-gloved hand resting on his arm. Then a blur seemed to move over the scene, for Carl was saying, Corey, I want you to meet my fiancé. I must have said something. I must have led them up to Tante Jan's front room that we used now as a parlor. I only recall how my family came to the rescue, talking, shaking hands, taking coats, finding chairs, so that I would not have to do or say anything. Mama broke even her own record for making coffee. Tante Anna passed cakes. Betsy engaged the young woman in a discussion of winter fashions, and Father pinned Carl in a corner with questions of the most international and impersonal nature. What did he make of the news that President Wilson was sending America troops, American troops to France? Somehow the half hour passed. Somehow I managed to shake her hand, then Carl's hand, and to wish them every happiness. Betsy took them down to the door. Before it clicked shut, I was fleeing up the stairs to my own room at the top of the house where the tears could come. How long I lay on my bed sobbing for the one of my life I do not know. The one love of my life I do not know. Later, I heard father's footsteps coming up the stairs. For a moment, I was a little girl again, waiting for him to tuck the blankets tight. But this was a hurt that no blanket could shut out. And suddenly I was afraid of what father would say. Afraid, he would say, there will be someone else soon. And that forever afterward, this untruth would lie between us. For in some deep part of me, I knew already that there would not, soon or ever, be anyone else. The sweet cigar smell came into the room with father. And of course, he did not say the false idle words. Corey, he began instead, do you know what hurts so very much? It's love. Love is the strongest force in the world, and when it is blocked, that means pain. There are two things we can do when this happens. We can kill the love so that it stops hurting, but then, of course, part of us dies too. Or, Corey, we can ask God to open up another route for that love to travel. God loves Carl even more than you do, and if you ask him, he will give you his love for this man, a love nothing can prevent, nothing destroy. Whenever we cannot love in the old human way, Corey, God can give us the perfect way. I do not know, as I listen, I did not know as I listened to Father's footsteps winding back down the stairs that he had given me more than the key to this hard moment. I did not know that he had put into his, my hands the secret that would open far darker rooms than this, places where there was not on a human level anything to love at all. I was still in 
kindergarten in these matters of love. My task just then was to give up my feeling for Carl without giving up the joy and wonder that had grown with it. And so, that very hour, lying there on my bed, I whispered the enormous prayer, Lord, I give to you the way I feel about Carl, my thoughts about our future. Oh, you know, everything. Give me your way of seeing Carl instead. Help me to love him that way, that much. And even as I said the words, I fell asleep. And that is the end of chapter 3. Join me next time for chapter 4, The Watch Shop, premiering next Monday.